Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Part 10, this is Amos. You know, Amos Moses was a Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. Some of y'all might remember that. Some of you don't. That means nothing to you. But his namesake was the prophet Amos. And we are in chapter 2 tonight. This is part 2. We'll hit chapter 3 and we'll begin chapter 4. That is my goal. So famous Amos was a, uh, a rancher. Let me say a prayer. Father, thank you for this night and for this book of Amos. I pray, God, that you would lead us into your word. We'll give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Amen. All right, there's the hat. Famous Amos. So we left off at verse uh, 12, verses 9 through 12. Let's hit there. We we, we touched on it, but I want to review an intro from verses 9 through 12 of chapter 2. It said, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Obviously, God is the I here. And led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. So notice this. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. God reminded Israel of his past and vast power and faithfulness. When they first came into the promised land, they were afraid of these mighty Amorites. Hey, I got to say something before we move any further. Did y'all notice Heather up here singing? We got a new team member. Awesome. Yes, we love Rob and Heather and so proud of them. That is just awesome. So when the children of Israel first came into the promised land, they were afraid of the Amorites. They were like oaks and these, these cedars, you know, these, these mighty trees. And uh, the Lord just moved them out of the way. Just, just moved them out of the way. I had a conversation with a fellow this week, and he told me that, that he was uh, landscaping some, uh, a, a yard over in the Ritter area. And, and I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, we're going to do some landscaping at LifePoint. He's like, yeah. He said, I planted five or six 50-foot mature live oak trees. And 38, yeah, you heard that. Valerie said, we're going with azaleas. And and, and like several, quite a few 38-foot magnolia trees. And so many uh, 100-year-old, 150-year-old, what kind of trees were those? Olive trees? Olive trees. And I'm like, and the Ritter, you know, and I'm like, how? I didn't even know. Exactly, you got it. I I didn't even know you could move 
a 50-foot live oak tree or a 38-foot uh, magnolia tree or 150-year-old. And, and he's like, well, you got to be very careful. He said, we get the, the live oaks from South Carolina, and they're on a flatbed trailer on a truck. You have to wrap the, the branches up just right. you got to put a hairnet on them. You know what I'm saying? And, and so the leaves don't get all messed up. And then we, we got the, the magnolias from somewhere else. We got the olive trees from California. I'm like, these people are spending a fortune. And he's like, I have a landscaping business. You know, like, <laughs> the, the thing is, those giant trees, that's how the Amorites were perceived by Israel. But the Lord said, not a problem. I can move them. I, I'm in the business of making a way where there seems to be no way. So God reminds them of his past and vast power and faithfulness. But it, it, the question becomes this. How could Israel turn their backs on the God who made a way where there seemed to be no way? That's what he's pointing out. You turned your back on me after all of that? Here's something we can take away from this. An attitude of gratitude is vital in our walk with God. For us here in the new covenant, the application of this, we have to continually be reminded of the cross. He's, better, he's been better to us than we deserve. What he did on that cross, we can never repay him for. He's been so good to me, I cannot tell it all, the old song says. And so the idea is we have to just be filled with gratitude, constantly remembering where he brought us from. Israel should have done that as well. He goes on, I raised up some of your sons as prophets. God reminded them, I, I turned little Jeremiah into a prophet of the Most High God. Little Jeremiah. You would think they would be grateful, humble, obedient, but they were not. They even commanded their prophets, who were their sons that came from them. They commanded them saying, don't do that. Don't, don't prophesy. You don't need to be a preacher's son. Oh, I, I could preach on that for a minute. You know, don't be so concerned with your kids getting the right jobs. Be more concerned with them following the will of God for their lives. Not, not in such a way that you can brag to your, your, your friends at the bridge club. Like, does, does anybody even do that anymore? Like, is there a bridge club anymore? But You know what I'm saying? In the hoity-toity circles, you can say, well, my kid's this and my kid's this. Listen, the most important thing is that that kid follows the track that God has had prepared for them before they were ever born. And, and they said, hey, we, we know you got a call of God on your but don't prophesy. You, you need to do something different than that. Some of your young men, they were called to be Nazarites. That vow of a Nazarite was a vow of dedication to the Lord. God was giving them an opportunity for a deeper walk. And instead of them going deeper into God, they went deeper into self and rejected and despised the, the deep walk with God. He said, you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. You sabotaged the call of God on their lives. You find that Nazarite vow number six. It was used to express a special desire to get close to God, to separate yourself from the pleasures of the world and, and, and unto God. It was positioning oneself to be, listen to this, mightily used by God. But Israel discouraged that and said, no, 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 you, you don't need that. You, 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 don't need, you don't need that kind of consecration. You don't need that kind of holiness. You just, you just live, you know, the way everybody else lives and the way they expect you to live. You'll never be used for God until you separate yourself unto the Lord. 
And, and here was a backslidden nation. We're kind of doing a forensic uh, investigation of them. They were backslidden. They, they despised the consecrations under God. I want to tell you something. Like I grew up, y'all know, I grew up Pentecostal. I grew up with, you, you know, I told you on Sunday we didn't play with, with the regular playing cards. It was a line of demarcation in our church. Some people think that's crazy. It was a line of demarcation at the time in that culture. I, I know my old pastor, Brother Mac, came out of gambling halls and dens and He's like, we're not going to get into that. That was very painful. Those were dark times for me. And he drew some lines. And, 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 and now, you know, my family, we play cards and stuff like that. But be careful about criticizing lines of separation and holiness. Because if you don't have those kinds of lines, you'll never be greatly used by God. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you've got to lay some things aside. And I got to I got to admit to you, it's not just I feel this conviction, therefore I'm going to lay it aside. Sometimes it's just in the black and white of the word. The word says this, whether I feel it or not, I'm going to obey it. But then there are also lines that you draw that are based on principles. You just got to draw that line somewhere. Don't despise those things. I got friends who have gotten into trouble just throwing off lines, throwing off just, I don't need any lines. They, they made a line, and the line was this. Lines don't matter. That was their line. Lines don't matter. That became their line. Lines don't matter. And it got them into serious trouble, and it certainly takes away from your effectiveness to be used by God. you got to separate for some things and draw close to God. It's a powerful thing. They said, no, you don't need that. Don't worry about that Nazarite vow. Look at verses 13 and uh, going through 16. Are you with me? Yeah. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. The Lord says, I am weighed down by you. God saw his own people as a burden and not a joy. Guzik says this, it's the difference between the pleasure a parent feels in dealing with an obedient child and the drudgery a parent feels in dealing with a stubborn, rebellious child. It weighs on that parent. It's a heavy burden to carry. The Lord said, I am weighed down. I am weighted down by, you're not a joy, you're a weight to me. Justice was being perverted. The rich were receiving preferential treatment in that Israel. The poor were being oppressed. God was displeased. And, and again, I said this at the beginning of the series. It wasn't necessarily that the poor were being oppressed, although that is bad. But God was displeased because of those kinds of behaviors, his plans and purposes were not being pushed forward as they should be. It wasn't just, well, the rich are exploiting the poor. This is, this is the covenant people of God. And God was saying, I have plans. I'm, I'm going to use this nation. And here you are playing games, and, and the rich are exploiting the poor. You've got favoritism going on. It's thwarting my plans to use you, the, the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, for great things. 
God's people were cheating and manipulating each other. Greed was getting the best of them. It was derailing the plans and purposes of God for their lives. And the Lord said, I'm going to get it back. I'm going to get you back on track. You had exploitation of the vulnerable, taking advantage of the weak. And those attitudes were guaranteed to not push God's plans and purposes forward. So he vowed to set his house in order. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle, London, said this. Now, it is to be understood, dear friends, before we proceed further, that our text is but a figure, since God is not to be oppressed by man. All the sin that man can commit can never disturb the serenity of his perfections, nor cause such as a wave upon the sea of his everlasting calm. He doth but speak to us after the manner of man. So the Lord says that under the load of human guilt, he is pressed down until he crieth out because he can bear no longer the iniquity of those that offend against him. He is personally taking the pain that his people, the poor, the weak, the oppressed, are feeling. And, and he's saying, I am feeling this. I mean, God is, is not depressed. He's not wringing his hands. But he was taking note. And he's, he's, he can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And here we have a figure of that, as Spurgeon said from the book of Amos. He said, the flight shall perish from the swift, the strong shall not strengthen in power. It, it, so the one way the judgment of God would express itself against Israel is that they would find themselves unable to succeed in ways they previously thought they were strong. And without the blessing of God, the swift are never fast enough. The strong are never strong enough. The mighty aren't mighty enough to get what God wants done, done. Israel was so confident in their own ability that God said, you're going to try to do something, but you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to fail, and I'm going to let you fail. It reminds me of Samson. Remember a Nazarite, by the way, had a Nazarite consecration on his life, and he confided Spill the beans to old Delilah. She cut his hair. And she said, oh, oh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he got up, the Bible says in Judges 16, says that he got up as before expecting strength. And he wist not that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Strength that he had counted on in the past. He gets up and it's gone. That's what this reminds me of. We can escape this judgment by realizing now that even our strength is nothing without the Lord. I don't care how strong you are, how smart you are, how talented you are. I mean, how, how God's used you in the past. Paul communicated that in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can become vulnerable in our perceived strengths if we don't acknowledge our weaknesses. When... I'm weak, then am I strong. That's the idea. So Israel's in trouble, y'all. They're, they're in trouble. This, this, this gets gloomy. It gets gloomier. But we are in chapter 3 now, moving along. Verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Against the whole family which I brought up. 
Israel is said to be a family. And it was. Ethnically, genetically. However, the family bond was really based in their sharing of the Abrahamic covenant. Because there were proselytes who were not ethnic descendants of Abraham who were in this covenant as well. I can think of several right offhand. Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite. And before all of them, that mixed multitude that came out of Egypt, and they would convert from whatever gods they served to the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and ritually, they would go down in, a, in the waters of baptism. The Jews called it a mikvah. You can go to Israel, and you can see these baptismal tanks all over the place. They're just holes in the ground, but they're called mikvahs. And there were ceremonial washings and baptisms. John the Baptist was, you know, using a mikvah. Then he went to the Jordan River. It was The Jordan became his mikvah. The idea is this. They, those proselytes would go into the water, and the rabbis would say that when they came out of the water, they may have been a Hittite, an Amorite. They may have been, uh, you know, uh, a Canaanite. But when they went down in the mikvah, and, and they made some vows and some oaths, they came up out of the mikvah a Jew in every way. Their past was washed away. Sounds like water baptism, doesn't it? Their past was washed away and left in the water, and they came out as a son or a daughter of Abraham when they came out of the water. Israel, being brought out of Egypt, that, that was because of the covenant. God had spoken to Abraham all those years before. Your, your descendants will spend time in, in Egypt, but I will bring them out with a strong hand. It wasn't just the genetic descendants, but it was that covenant, and it was those who were in the covenant. It was not so much about who they were, but whose they were. And I got to say, it's the same with us. I, I want to make this point. It's the same with us. Regardless, I preached about leaving a legacy of faith and Elon Musk and all that stuff this past weekend, but regardless of the legacy of faith that you leave and, and the impact that you have on your children and on your babies, let me tell you something. They've got to learn to serve the Lord for themselves. I mean, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But, you know, Junior's going to grow up. And Junior's got to make that decision on his own. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to follow the faith of my fathers. That's some scriptural terminology there. But, but it's up to that individual. I want to encourage some of you with prodigals. You, you can't save them. You can't make that decision. You can pray. You can influence. But you've got to let God uh, get into that situation. And that's, that child has to make their own decision. You can't carry that, that weight. You've got to relinquish that to the Lord. They've got to make up their own mind. You know, the Bible said that uh, there's been given to every man the measure of faith. To every man. To, to the individual. The individual has to make their own mind up. Now the point is this. For Israel, 
to disregard the, the, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God after all he had done for them in the light of his great deliverance and his mercy that was, you know, based on the words of that covenant, after all he had done, and for them to disregard him, turn their backs on him, it was beyond inexcusable. When he brought Israel up from the land of Egypt, he proved his love, his care for them, his faithfulness to them, and now they speak against him? It shows you just how bad things had gotten. The central act in the Old Testament was that deliverance out of Egypt. You take a, 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 a biblical literature course, you're going you're gonna to dive in to out of, across, into, out of, across, into, out of, across, into. That's the central theme of the Old Testament. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you across that Red Sea and across that wilderness and into the promised land. Out of, across, and into. That was the central theme. But for us, y'all, for us, he brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's all about what Christ did on the cross and, and where Christ brought me from. And Christ put me into the family of God and brought me into this covenant. I was a stranger to the covenants of promise, but I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Like It's all, again, about out of, across, and into. It's just a little bit more expansive. I mean, exponentially more expansive. It's a beautiful thing. And the idea is this. We must constantly look back and remember what Christ did for us and live our lives in light of that great fact. Otherwise, we'll lose our way. We'll rely on our own strength, and we'll turn our back on God. We won't consecrate our lives to God. We won't live lives that are, are, are worthy to be used by God. You know, you can, you can position yourself to be used mightily or hardly at all. Vessels of honor and dishonor is what Paul called it. You, 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 can, you can build some straw houses or you can build some brick houses, you know. It depends on how you live your life, and we have to keep our minds on Jesus. Y'all got to pray that we get that youth building open up soon. <laughs> he said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's crazy here. There's this connection between privilege and responsibility. You've been privileged, and you're held to a higher standard. So if they thought their standing, Israel, was, you know, they're a special nation, so they're less responsible, they were tragically mistaken, and we are the same way. G. Campbell Morgan says this, the false deduction which is too often made is that if we are the privileged people of God, therefore we may look for his mercy, he will not punish us. That is not so, he says. The measure of our privileges in the divine economy is the measure of our responsibility. Therefore, if we fail to fulfill that responsibility, he will not pass over our sins, but rather will visit upon us all our iniquities. It is well that those nations who boast of the divine favor should lay this lesson to heart. I think of the scripture that says, let judgment first begin at the house of God. And we've seen that in our study of these minor prophets over and over. Israel was responsible. And I would say if Israel was responsible, the church is responsible. We have privileges, but we have responsibilities. Verses uh, 3 through 6, Amos connects uh, six statements 
that were obvious truths, but in stating these obvious things, in stating the obvious six times, he comes to this seventh statement, which is the point he really wanted to drive home. So listen to this, verses 3 through 6. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? That's the seventh statement. In other words, he's, he's, he's saying the obvious is, of course not. He's saying when judgment comes against the cities of Israel, everybody is going to know. Amos is making this declaration. Famous Amos is making this clear. It's no accident. It's the Lord. It's not fate. It's not bad luck. It's the Lord. Covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham. Messing some things up because his covenant people have not turned to him. All it takes is turning to to the Lord again. It's a simple fix. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, and I'll hear from heaven. You know? It, it, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's just as simple as that. And we'll deal with this in a moment, but if you refuse to turn, there, there's some hard times that's coming your way as a believer because we have responsibilities. Everybody say that, responsibilities. responsibilities. You know, if only we could be alleviated of our responsibilities. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you, Jesus. Now I'm going to do my own thing. No, you'll never be able to do your own thing again in the same way you did before you knew Jesus. Oh, you can try. You can. You can try. But once you've been marked, you've been marked. You can run, but you can't hide. You, you can lie to yourself and everybody else. But, but there's a mark on your spirit. Heaven knows it and hell knows it. They want to destroy. Hell wants to destroy you and wipe you out. But they know, they know, hell knows. All they got to do is just make a little turn and we're in trouble. You've been marked. You can't get away. There's responsibilities that you have. It's, it's the same. Can I say this? Are you with me? Are you with me? The revelation, you're responsible for revelation that you get. I don't mean like you, you're like, well, I decided I would believe this. I don't mean like I decided I would believe this. I'm saying you're looking at word, you're hearing word, and the Holy Spirit opens you up and deposits truth on the inside of your spirit. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Who sired the Christ? Who overshadowed Mary and she conceived? The Holy Spirit fathered the Christ. Jesus said to Simon, my Father, the Holy Spirit, has revealed something to your spirit and it's changed you. It's made you like a rock. And he was responsible for that revelation. And you know the story. He tried to run and hide, didn't he? I, never, I don't know it. 
You know, the same guy, think about it. The same guy that said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, is, is warming his hands by a fire. And he's going, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. They said a couple of words, you know. Blankety blank, don't know him, I'm telling you. And the rooster crowed, and you know the story. He was trying to get away, but he was responsible for that revelation. When God reveals a truth to you, say Jesus' name, baptism, you're responsible for it. You can run, you can hide, you can say it ain't real, it's not real. But if it was revealed to your spirit, you just can't get away from it. You've seen something you can't unsee. In Scripture, well, it's awful quiet in here. Verses 7 through 8. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In context, Amos spoke of this coming judgment on Israel and the fact that God revealed this secret to his prophets, including Amos. It was prophesied for years and years before it actually happened. And the reason why was so Israel would have every opportunity to repent, to shift. God especially reveals the secrets of his coming judgment through his servants, the prophets, so that people will have time to repent and not be surprised. Adam Clark said, Such secrets of God are revealed to them that they may inform the people that by repentance and conversion they may avoid the evil and by walking closely with God secure the continuance of his favor. It reminds me of Jonah and Nineveh. Of course, that wasn't years and years in the future. He's like, 40 days, he's going to wipe you guys out. You know, once he finally got to Nineveh. You, you know, the Lord called him to go to Nineveh, and he's the reluctant prophet. He's like, I don't like those people. And I know that you're a God of mercy. I know why you revealed this to me, because you want them to repent. So Jonah gets in a boat and goes 25 Hundred miles the opposite direction. In those days, think of those miles. You know, he wasn't he wasn't flying on points and staying in fancy hotels on on points. He he's like I'm I'm going there. And you know the storm and the fish and vomits him out and finally goes to them. He's like forty days. You're doomed. And the king's like, oh my god. He starts we're gonna fast. He's like. Uh, Daddies and mamas and children and Fido and, and Tabby and, and all the animals, everything's going to fast. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes and the Lord says, okay, you're forgiven. And, and Jonah's like, dead coming. You know, like, I knew you would do this. Why didn't want to go in the first place, you know? But the Lord, the Lord sends those, those prophetic words, especially regarding judgment, to give people an opportunity, a chance to repent. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos is saying, don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. I can't help 
but say what's been given to me. As natural as it is for a man to fear when a lion roars, it's that natural for the prophet to prophesy when God speaks to his spirit. And, and, and it, it reminds me of, you know, Jeremiah. He's like, I wanted to be quiet, but it was like a fire shut up in my bones. I had to say something. And, and personally, let me just say this on a personal note. I believe in the Lord speaking to people nowadays. I've already mentioned it. He speaks to us through his word, straight up through his word. And not just through, through, through the ink and paper that's there, but it's the message that's in there. And, and the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us from that. But the Lord also speaks to our to us, and some very rarely, from my understanding, does anybody get some kind of audible voice? You know, I am God. This is what I say. Usually, it's that still small voice. It's in the spirit. People are looking for that audible voice. Don't quit. If you get an audible voice, okay, you got an audible. You'll know it, right? Don't don't look for an audible. Listen inside. That's the way the prophetic works. That's the way the Lord speaks. It's this still, small voice. And when you get it, you can't help but speak it if it's a word that needs to be spoken. And, and you know, that's, that's what we see here with Amos and even Jeremiah. Verses 9 and 10. Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. So this, this idea that the city of Ashdod was a leading city of the Philistines, and God invited the nations. This is fascinating to me. So represented by Philistia and uh, Egypt, he said, come to Samaria. Get a front row seat. This is the capital of the northern kingdom. And, and look at their sins. Watch them. Watch them misbehave. Great tumults in her midst. The oppressed within her. On, on the choice of the Egyptians and the Philistines as witnesses to their wickedness, David Allen Hubbard, Fuller Theological Seminary, I thought this was great. He said, their reputations for injustice and brutality, speaking of Ashdod, speaking of uh, Egypt and Philista, he was saying, he was saying the, their reputations for injustice and brutality would be resented by the Israelites who considered themselves to be way more moral, morally superior to those whom God had summoned to witness their demise. It's fascinating. Store up violence and robbery in their palaces. The rich and the powerful of Israel used their wealth to oppress and steal, and God invited the nations. Watch them, and I'm going to show you what happens when they misbehave. Verses 11 through 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land, he shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. What? This idea, this was fulfilled in the Assyrian invasion of Israel. This would be less than 30 years after Amos prophesied. For 10 years, Israel would be subject to uh, the Assyrian Empire, a, a subject state. But, but that was only the opening salvo. Because this idea of a shepherd takes from the mouth of the lion, that, that's from Exodus 22, 10 through 13. You can go check it out. And it says that if an animal dies in the care of another man, like a shepherd, 
then that shepherd must make restitution to the owner of the animal unless he could bring remains that proved the animal was attacked by a predator. A predator. So Amos' comparison is this sarcastic point that when the invasion strikes Israel, the devastation will be so complete that all they'll be able to rescue is proof of death in the form of scraps of furniture, the corner of a bed, the edge of a couch. So there was severe destruction coming. And, the, and Israel will be taken out who dwell in Samaria. This, this was fulfilled with the Assyrian exile of Israel less than 40 years after Amos. So you got 10 years of the, the subject state and then within, at the end of that 10 years, they're just, they're just taken and, 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 and just brutalized, as we'll see. And, and I'm, I'm moving quickly. Verses 13 through 15. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord, the God of hosts, that in that day I punish Israel for their transgressions. I also will visit I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. The altars of dedication to idols is the idea. They would be destroyed by God's judgment. And when you build a house to an idol, especially as a child of the living God, be sure you're inviting the destruction of the Lord. He's going to wipe that thing out before it's all said and done. God knows how to tear down our idols. Think, think about the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. Remember that? Those stupid Philistines brought that Ark in there before Dagon. And by daylight, Dagon had done fallen over. And then they set him back up. And the next day, fell over again. His arms, his hands fell off. His head fell off. God knows how to take down the idols. So you have these, these houses that are mentioned, the summer house, the winter house, the, you know, these different palaces, idol worship. It's all coming down. And, and this is all a reference to the, the prosperity that they had enjoyed and, and, uh, and the hardness of their heart. And um, there's some great historical stuff. But let's move on to chapter 4. I told you we were going to get to chapter 4. Verse 1, here this, I wanted to get to this. I got I to tiptoe through this part right here. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Amos was not like Isaiah, this court prophet, well-trained. He wasn't trained as a prophet. He was just a herdsman, a farmer. And when he wanted to get the point across about the indulgent women of Israel, he called them fat cows. Hmm. The area of Bashan, the northern part of Israel, it's the Golan Heights today. It was known for producing fat and healthy livestock. Psalm 22 mentions the strong bulls of Bashan or Bashan, some say. Ezekiel 39, 18 mentions the large livestock 
the fatlings of Bashan. And shockingly, Amos calls these women what he called them. The idea of, of uh, skinny models being the new norm to represent female beauty is, is a modern development. In ancient times especially, I'm looking at my notes to get this just right, plumpness was a valued sign of affluence. Not Donovan, but Guzik says, but I can pretty much guarantee, but not Donovan, Guzik says, I can pretty much guarantee though, in spite of that, ain't no time in human history that a woman has ever appreciated being called a fat cow. Hubbard said the sarcastic epithet cows of Bashan seems to refer both to the luxury that the women enjoyed and to a certain sensuality that came with their extravagant lifestyle. Adam Clark takes it further. The prophet here represents the iniquitous, opulent, idle, lazy drones, whether men or women, under the idea of fatted bullocks, which were shortly to be led out to slaughter. We were in Florida a while back. You can stand with me right now. We were driving. I was there for this thing I've been going to. I've got two more weeks of it called Pastors University. And uh, Valerie was with me. She was dropping me off at my class. And there were these cows out on the fields. And she said, man, those are lucky cows. They live in Florida, the Sunshine State. That's some lucky. I said, babe, they ain't no lucky cows. They're feeding them to slaughter them. They, they're going to be headed into a thing called a slaughterhouse. And, and we're going to buy some beef tenderloin. And we're going to eat them. That ain't lucky. <laughs> ain't no lucky cow. <laughs> and that's, you know, these could have been looked at as lucky cows. Ain't no lucky cow here. They're being led out to slaughter. They oppress the poor. They crush the needy. They were thwarting God's plans and purposes. Incessant demands for luxuries drove them to greater injustices. They said, bring wine, let us drink. Self-consumed, self-absorbed, pursuit of pleasure. God said, I, I could have done so many great things with you and for you. But you were wrapped up in your own little world. You disregarded me. And I'm closing with this. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord God has sworn. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon 
says the Lord. We'll deal with this next time. But I'll go ahead and say this. When they were invaded and they were finally led into Assyrian captivity, historians say that they were led through the broken walls of their own beloved cities, destruction everywhere. They were stripped naked and they were strung together through their lower lips with, you guessed it, fish hooks. This is years later. And they're having to be careful and they're walking and they see all the, the fat cows of Bashan, these, these self-consumed people, people of God. That's depressing. But I just want to remind you, God wants to use you. God didn't just save you to get you to heaven. God saved you because He's got a plan for your life here on earth. And we can't live self-consumed, self-absorbed, pleasure-seeking, always about me, 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 more, 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 my, 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 I, 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 us, us, us. It's got to be, what do you want from me, Lord? How can I serve you, Lord? He swore by His holiness. I'm set apart for you, and I'm telling you, I'm going to get a people that are set apart for me. Be ye holy as I am holy, says the Lord. That's still a word even to the church today. I want to use you greatly. Will you yield yourself to me so I can use you greatly? Can you close your eyes with me right now? Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your willingness to use people like us. But it's not our strengths that you're after, and it's not our gifts and talents that you're after, really. It's our heart, God, because if you get our heart, you get all of that. You get our time, our talent, our treasure. It's a matter of us surrendering ourselves and our all to you for your glory and your service. And, Father, the symptoms of our selfishness and our exploitation and trying to get ahead and push our own agenda, Father, let us re resist that in Jesus' name. And let us surrender ourselves and our all to you and prefer our brothers and sisters, God, and walk humbly before our God and love mercy and do good, Father. And respect the household of faith, Lord, and promote our brothers and sisters above ourselves. And let the greatest among you be your servant, Father. Help us to live lives consecrated, committed to you, Lord. Lines in our lives based on convicting spirit, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, Lord. Help us to live lives that are worthy to be used by you in Jesus. And can you lift your hands? Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.